Ready to connect with the investment community here in Cleveland? Want to learn about the people, events, projects, and firms that are making a difference? Want all that but feel like you don't have the time? This is the show for you. Welcome to Guardians of Finance. Brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland and hosted by Matt McLaughlin, Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, Guardians of Finance will provide you with a chance to foster deeper connections and know what is getting the attention of Cleveland's investment community. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland and attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. And now, here's your host, Matt McLaughlin. Hello and welcome to the Guardians of Finance. I am your host, Matt McLaughlin. In this episode, we talk with Yoel Mayerfeld co-CEO of Chase Properties Limited. Yoel has a fascinating career path that started with him working through a temp agency to get his first job on Wall Street in New York City. He then worked his way up a derivatives trading desk before he and his family relocated to Cleveland to work in a private real estate investment firm. We talked with Yoel about his journey, some of his mentors, and about what has been happening in real estate over the past couple of years. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode with Yoel Mayerfeld. Yoel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners and maybe talk a little bit about Chase Properties, the firm that you're co-CEO for? My name is Yoel Mayerfeld. As you mentioned, I'm co-CEO of Chase Properties, along with my partner, Andy Klein. Chase Properties is a family business started by my father-in-law 50 years ago in 1973, where it was launched to develop shopping centers throughout the country. And since then, it's evolved to primarily be a little bit lower on the risk spectrum by investing in stabilized and light value add retail, but also industrial and multifamily throughout the U.S. with a focus on the Midwest and Southeast, where today we're in 21 states. And your offices are here in Cleveland, and they've always been here. Is that right? Yep. We were started in Cleveland, as I mentioned, by my father-in-law, Stuart Klein, who grew up here. And our office is based in Beachwood, Ohio. So tell us a little about your background. I don't think you were born and raised here in Cleveland, but would love to hear kind of your start and kind of how you made your way here over time. That's right. I'm not from Cleveland. I'm from the New York, New Jersey area. I grew up in New Jersey and then I went to college in New York and had my first professional career in New York as a derivatives trader on Wall Street, which I did for a long time and really enjoyed. But at a certain point, was ready for a change from highly exotic derivatives and structured finance to something more tangible while staying within the investment world and finance. And That decision process sort of intersected at a time for me when my wife, who was from Cleveland, had expressed interest in leaving New York City and going back to Cleveland where her parents and her family were, but also just as important, where there would be more space and land and a place that we would be in possibly a better position to start a family. And that's what we did. We moved to Cleveland. And that's when I got involved in her family's business, which is Chase Properties, which at that time was strictly retail and strictly financed through the family's capital. But over time, as I got involved and my partner got involved, we've grown it to bring outside investors in, which really fueled our growth in a fun way. And then 
I added industrial and multifamily to our mix because we needed it as a family for diversification, but also the investors that we had forged relationships really wanted exposure in real estate through us beyond retail, but to include industrial and multifamily. I know that story all too well. I don't know if we talked about this beforehand, but I myself was lured back to Cleveland or to Cleveland by my wife's family as well. There's quite a few others in the community that have that, and that's the reason they're here, which is always fun to hear. So what was your first memory or notable experience with finance, financial services, kind of what got you interested? We've had such a range of answers. It's become kind of a fun question. So what pops out in your mind of when you were growing up, maybe it was in college, maybe later, where was that first you know, known or interest in finance or investments? What's a notable memory there? That's a great question. And it's never been asked to me in my life. So normally, a new question, I'd have to really process it and think through. But I, I do think about this often. It was a movie. I mean, it was probably a series of movies. Like I love trading plays. I love, there was a number of movies involving Wall Street and finance that I love, but there was one that sticks out of my memory that I haven't watched since I was a kid. So it might be a terrible movie today at, at 47 years old. But I certainly loved it as a child. And it was called The Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox. Did you ever see that movie? I haven't, no. Well, I want to watch it myself now because I'm curious how I'd still like it. But <laughs> the bottom line was that he, Michael J. Fox's character, and I won't remember it exactly right, but he was able to get a job in this big financial company in the mailroom. And once he got into the building, he figured out a way to get sort of a front office position or fake his way into a front office position because he was in the building and sort of pretend that he was working in this you know more decision-making role. And the movie is him basically living this dual life of working in the mailroom and having this very exciting financial career while like changing into his suit from his mailroom clothes in the elevator. And I remember just the hustle of his character that was very appealing to me. And so it was a fun movie and it made anybody watching it excited about the more financial career part of his role. But what stuck out to me was that duality and that he had to figure out how to make the thing work with what he had. And the reason I think about that particularly to me is I didn't have a traditional track to finance. I grew up in a environment that really wasn't in the cards. I didn't go to the right college. For the role I ended up having on Wall Street, they strictly hired from Wharton and Harvard and sometimes MIT. And I didn't go to either of those three schools. I didn't apply to those schools. I went to a religious studies college, and that was all I applied to. The investment banks didn't recruit from there. And I had to very much do a backdoor in, almost like that movie, to get my first job. I didn't work in the mailroom, but I did go through a temp agency to work in a very back office like bookkeeping role. And once I was in the building, literally, I was able to meet with the people that would ultimately hire me for my first job at college. So that was the inspiration for me. That's really neat. What do you think those people saw in you or what did you show them to get them kind of over the hump? Like, hey, this person has maybe a non-traditional finance career path. What caught their eye? Was it just drive? Was it intellect? What was it there? Back then, I would have said maybe just the drive, the hustle. But as I learned about myself, as I've gotten older, I had not been aware as a kid or as a student that I had dyslexia. But later in life through diagnosis of my own child 
and learning that it's hereditary, I learned that I have dyslexia. And in my specific case, I'm very good with math and concepts and can do a lot of back of the envelope math and problem solving, I think because of my dyslexia. And early on, I think I was able to show that I'm good with math while being a driven hustling type. I don't know that the math part for real estate, although it's really helpful, but particularly for finance is extremely important to have that math be head. It's so interesting that you went into derivatives trading because anyone who's studied for the CFA on level two knows that the derivatives part of level two is one of the worst or the toughest parts of the program. And you know, trying to value swaptions and other derivatives is extremely difficult. Was derivatives something that you always wanted to get into? Or was that just kind of where you found yourself like wanting to be on Wall Street and you just happened to work for a firm maybe that had an open position with on a derivatives trading desk? I was drawn to derivatives and I think I was drawn to it because of the complex nature of what the product was and my ambition to understand it, to like take it apart. I had like two really important people in my life at that time that were, became my bosses, which were Len Ellis and Maria Baum. And they both were incredible, and particularly Len. Maria was incredible at, she was probably the most incredible trader that I've ever met. But what Len was able to do was make the Black-Scholes model into something that would be understandable by almost a child. How do you value this option without an Excel spreadsheet, without Black-Scholes? What are the moving parts? He did that for me as a summer intern. And I thought it was so amazing that like, I could now like, understand in my head some of the big picture reasons for why this made sense, why they were useful products, how they could be helpful, and how they go up and down in value that caused me to continue to really be driven to have a career in that world. So I owe it to, and I do think that's interesting. I think that only super smart people know how to do that, know how to make complicated concepts simple. And that's what Maria and Len did for me. Those two people that kind of were your mentors, did you have to kind of push the envelope and kind of pursue them to be mentors or to help you out? Or were they very kind of giving people that saw you and kind of immediately took a, a liking to you that they were going to mentor? Like, how did that mentorship relationship come about with those two individuals? I would say there, I mean, Lennon especially is like this incredibly giving, nurturing, like teaching, like he had been, you know, the best teacher ever, professor ever. So I think it would come naturally to him, but he was obviously like a very busy guy. He ran the whole derivatives business at the time. But I think my role in that was I'm a very curious person and I can sometimes be pushy with my questions. And I think that maybe that interaction helped make people who maybe didn't want to be mentors, be mentors, because I certainly would ask questions until I understood. I've never been one to be able to pretend I understand something that I don't understand. Maybe go into a little bit more detail on kind of how your career on derivatives trading desk and within derivatives in New York, how did that progress and kind of where did you, where did your career path take you throughout the time you were, you were doing that? So I had a focus with index derivatives, which would mean derivatives on the S&P 500, Dow Jones, NASDAQ, and that transitioned to, you know, still a focus on index, but included global indices and then single stock baskets that maybe looked like indexes that whether they were options or swaps or other kinds of structured products that would involve understanding the correlation between different asset classes, you know, maybe the fixed income exposure with the foreign exchange exposure with the 
equities exposure. So that's how sort of my career progressed with like more products. And then ultimately what would happen to most of the index traders that I knew, which is what I was and ended up running the index desk at the bank that I worked at is that you would typically get to a point and then be asked to take on more of the esoteric risk, the quantitative risk, which would take you into exotic derivatives, which were ones that, you know, all of a sudden where I told you I was drawn to this business because of the intuitive, my ability to figure out intuitively what something should look like to not possibly being able to understand how to do a Monte Carlo model in my head. But I was doing that as a job. I was relying on the PhD quants that you know worked for us and supported us to help us model these different highly complicated products. And that's where I sort of stopped liking it. So I did that for a while, but wasn't sleeping very well when I didn't really understand what risks I didn't understand. And if things moved around in the world with markets and volatility, you know, where my exposures really were. I'm sure there are people that can do that more in their head or can feel more comfortable with that risk. I wasn't. And that's when uh, I said to my wife, Lindsay, I think I've capped out on my derivatives career. I loved, you know, what I did till now, but you know, thankfully I had a successful career, which gave me the latitude to financially to take my time and what I wanted to do next, which was really something more entrepreneurial driven with something that was more of a tangible asset class like real estate. I'm cheating here because I've looked at your LinkedIn profile and I see that it looks like you moved to Cleveland around 2006. Many people know what happened in 2008 with derivatives. Do you think that that kind of complexity maybe contributed to 2008 that people didn't know where their risks were? Or is that just a parallel that I'm making that probably doesn't apply? Well, I don't know that the timing was such that, you know, that's when there was so much risk that people didn't understand. And that wasn't the case for me. But, you know, part of what you're saying was absolutely true to me and maybe still be true today, although I just don't know, I'm not as connected to that world. And that is people, I mean, you saw this with McLeese and all the people that blew up their banks, is that people had way more ability to take massive amounts of risk than I think the stakeholders realized, like, let's say the shareholders or the heads of the big banks like me. I mean, I was this young kid. I think I worked really diligently to not like make mistakes. I could have, you know, pressed a button or it wasn't that easy. We had product controllers that were checking on our risk all the time, but there were always ways that you could take more risk than maybe they were completely aware of. So I think in general, there was a lot of exposure with derivatives, but in general with banks and the latitude that maybe young, inexperienced people had that was not ideal and maybe still isn't. I don't know what those risk controls look like today at the major banks. But I couldn't believe how much, like I could press a button and buy incredible amounts of S&P 500 futures or sell incredible amounts of S&P 500 futures without an issue. And I know there were a lot of other people and a lot of other banks that could do the same thing. Do you miss the hustle and bustle of Wall Street on a derivatives trading desk, that kind of intensity? Or is that something that you're kind of happy to put in your past and move on to the next chapter? The intensity didn't bother me. The risk that I was uncomfortable with would bother me. The intensity didn't bother me, but I don't miss the intensity either. I get intensity through real estate. I just get intensity from investment risk reward. I enjoy it. I enjoy that intensity. What I do miss about that life was being surrounded by a room of brilliant people that were constantly on a daily basis trying to very smartly solve problems. And I have a great team here at Chase Properties. 
They're also very smart people trying to solve problems, but it's on a different level when they're, you know, these PhD rocket scientist type people. And I miss that because that was a lot of fun to just see how other, and I'm not calling myself brilliant, but these other people I worked with, just to see how their minds worked and the ideas they would come up with was so inspiring. When you started into real estate, was that something that was that you already had a little bit of knowledge of, maybe given the family ties or maybe you did some on the side privately with yourself? Or was there a little bit of a ramp up period then when you should transition your career both to Cleveland and to the chase? Yeah, total ramp up period. Knew very little about real estate, except for what I read in the paper and all learned from my time at Chase. Was that kind of self-taught or did maybe your father-in-law or someone else in the firm kind of take you under their wing and show you how the business worked and be that kind of that mentor within the real estate realm? That was mostly my father-in-law because he was the day-to-day person. And he also is a good example of a smart, very knowledgeable person that knows how to break things down to be very simple, which was great. And then also my best friend, who we took the same track. Like he came with me to this, through this temp agency in college and we both worked back office in this bank and we both got ourselves these front office roles in the bank. His name is Lowell and he's currently the CIO of Brookfield. And he's the, you know one of the smartest people I know in evaluating real estate. And I give him a lot of credit for along the way, as I was learning, you know, he was always a phone call away to explain to me a concept or a geography or a asset class or a sector or how to hedge the debt in this type of real estate versus that type of real estate. So I would say my father-in-law, Stuart Klein and Lowell Barron taught me everything I know today about real estate. And when did you start expanding the portfolio of Chase? Maybe you mentioned that you guys have expanded into other real estate a little bit different than maybe what the firm was founded upon. When did you guys start doing that? And kind of what was your role in that? For me, it was like a personal app on my career within my wife's family business of any one investor is going to run out of capital with a certain amount of real estate deals. And I knew that, that there was only so much room for me to expand my career within this family business. I was struggling with that. You know, I keep mentioning other people because I do. It's always very important to me to acknowledge the people that have helped me in my life. And There was a friend from Cleveland, his name is Ellie Weiss, who suggested that, why don't you expand the strategy that your family's been doing and bring outside capital in? I'm sure there are a lot of people that would love to join in. I said, we've never taken outside capital. Like That sounds like, who knows that they can invest with us? And like, nobody knows us and we're in that way. And he was like, trust me, I swear to you, you go out and tell people you want to bring in capital, they're going to your father has this incredible reputation. Everybody knows that he's like super under the radar and has been great with investments and you'll be able to do it. And he really pushed us, pushed me and my partner, Andy, and then ultimately Stuart, who I think also really liked the idea of not having outside investors originally. He enjoyed investing his own capital. And originally his first capital partner, which he credits, you know, certainly his success, a guy named Lou Weisberg. But ultimately he agreed to have us all look to do that. And we went out to raise, I think we were trying to raise $15 million for our first fund. And in like half a second, we got oversubscribed to 17. We didn't want to be higher. We wanted to cut it off, make sure we could execute, find the deal flow that would make sense, which we did. And then, you know, fund two, fund three, fund four, they were all higher. And now we're about to launch our fifth fund. I always credit my friend Ellie for giving me the push. It was either like stay 
within the family business and, you know, potentially cap out my career or look to do something else or do something else within the family business. And I'm very grateful for that. And I think my partners are too. What was it about the, or what is it about the firm's philosophy that's maybe a little bit unique or your guys' niche that made it easy to raise capital and maybe had been kind of the key to your success over time? That's easy. It's the downside focus we have as a family, as a culture in our business that focus on risk compared to reward, which is what, you know, originally my father-in-law, when he was developing these assets, he had, you know, most of the tenants signed up pre-putting out a ton of money. So even development, which is the highest risk form of real estate, he did it in as low of a risk way as possible. And today, while that's very challenging to do and certainly almost impossible in retail today, we see the best risk reward in sourcing at the right price, the best real estate in certain geographies, or and having some light value add programs involved in those assets. And I think people know that about us. Like we're not looking for home runs, we're looking for doubles. We've had home runs, but the intent is to be consistent with our returns for ourselves and now our investors, where we're consistently returning low teens every single year that we've brought outside capital. As you're probably well aware, there's been so much talk of commercial real estate. Is it a bubble there? Is it no, I say a bubble, but maybe is there, is there a lot of risk there right now with the hybrid or work from home kind of dynamics? How are you guys thinking about that right now? And what do you see kind of on the ground, given that you have your hands and maybe not some of the bad deals out there, but what are you seeing from the market? So the changes that have taken place have actually been pretty good for us. They've been obviously incredibly bad for office. I credit my father-in-law also, he never once looked at office. He never wanted to be, you know, there were office opportunities over time. And when I mentioned why people like investing with us, we're incredibly disciplined. And that really comes from Stuart. He was always very disciplined about the fact that the capital requirements to retenant office made it from a comparative risk reward for what we could invest in, something that he wasn't interested in. So we're very lucky. We don't have any office exposure. And I think that is what's obviously going to be most impacted from the changes of how people are living and working and will continue in the future. It has to. But the last sector that was like office, which is basically a dirty word today, was retail You know, several years ago. And we have a terrible amount of retail exposure we had to be self-reflective or because we still liked retail and everybody hated retail. We liked retail. We had to be self-reflective. Are we, are we missing something? Are there changes that are happening that are you know, going to seriously impact the value of our real estate? And we sort of doubled down and we liked it and we liked it even more because we saw that there was no new development happening in retail. So the assets we had and the assets we could still buy at good prices would become more and more valuable over time. So as CNBC and the Wall Street Journal were saying, you know, death of retail, we were getting really great opportunities to buy the best retail asset in the markets we like, which are secondary and tertiary throughout the Midwest and Southeast, while continuing to diversify into industrial multifamily. I mean, we were never saying we only want to be retail. We just said we really like retail. And we have seen the results of that, especially post-COVID, where that migration out of cities to more of the Midwest and Southeast has really just moved population to more of where our shopping centers are located and where we'd like to own shopping centers. But also the lack of development has caused the retailers to need our real estate more than ever. That combined with malls, which the savvier retail investors understood there's a big difference between 
open air shopping centers and malls. And whereas the less savvy, we're lumping them together. Malls aren't working. Malls are a really risky place to be because of the failure of department stores. They haven't performed well. They're not meeting their customers or how young people want to shop these days and how people don't want to shop. They don't want to spend the time walking through malls like we used to when people are so convenience oriented and they want to be able to buy online, pick up in the store. You can't really do that in a mall, but you can do that in an open air center. So as these malls crumble, better retailers are moving out of malls, coming to the best open air center, which would be, let's say, ours in one of our markets. And sometimes we just don't have space for them. So when we do have a waiting list or bed bath that goes out of business, you know, we've got multiple LOIs to replace that box and retailers couldn't be more thrilled that there's an opportunity for them to go in because they weren't able to get into a certain market. So this sort of new world of omni-channel marketing, which is the integration of e-commerce and bricks and mortar has really just enhanced the need for our retail assets. And in terms of multifamily and industrial, industrial, you know, that continuation of e-commerce has made the industrial assets more and more in demand and continues to be more interesting in our portfolio. And of course, multifamily, nothing to do with COVID, just the fact that there's a shortage of housing, especially workforce, has made that sector continue to be really interesting for us. Was COVID pretty tough for you guys? Obviously, it hit and a lot of uncertainty. Talk to us a little bit about what were you guys' thoughts as you're going through that time and maybe some trials and kind of how you came out of it? Yeah, for three months, it was really tough because there were three months where all the retailers stopped paying, essentially, even the ones that had money and could afford to pay. We have debt. Real estate often requires debt. We're a low leverage. Part of our conservative risk-focused strategy is to be lower leverage than most real estate investors, but we still had loans that we needed to pay and no rent coming in, which was not a great combination. So the mitigation really was going to our lenders and asking them to defer our loan payments, which most did. And like Gratitude Huntington Bank was like the first one to call me. I didn't call them. They called me and said, I just want you to know, like, don't worry about it. We're going to work with you. You're going to be able to defer. Like I and my partners were literally losing sleep. So that was very great comfort and big lesson on partnership, particularly lending partners and how not to take, you know, who your lender is for granted. Because there were some lenders and types of lenders that it didn't work that way. And, And we managed through that. But It was a good lesson to me on the importance of our lender relationships. Outside of that, there were just, I would say there were some opportunities that we were really on pause. I think it was the right thing to do then when we didn't know what was going to happen with COVID. We didn't do the deals. They turned out to be amazing deals, but we pivoted pretty quickly to seeing, you know, once we knew the world would go on to seeing some great opportunities and some of our best purchases were right after that period of time. What's next for Chase Properties? You said you're, you know, you're raising money for your fifth fund now, I believe you said. Any more expansion plans that are kind of on the docket, you know, a couple of years out, or what's kind of next for your firm? We're continuing to do what we've always done to serve, you know, our family and mostly these Cleveland high net worth or family offices that have been investing with us for many years now. We're also now expanding through a partnership with a friend of mine back from my Wall Street days who has a large family office and is forming a entity to, I'm just being careful how I word this because there's like SEC rules around like raising capital. And I'm not talking about the fundraise. I'm talking about this person who is Glenn, who is significantly from his own capital to be investing in all three of our sectors, retail, industrial, multifamily, along with his partner, James, 
there may be partners, but that's the part I'm not going to talk about. But it's very exciting. They're going to, they're putting together a lot of dry powder for us as they see this $1.7 trillion of commercial real estate debt coming due over the next two years as what we see, which is, you know, incredible opportunities in good risk reward real estate assets. We see these periods of time in 80s, 90s, after 08, after COVID. And this one looks like another one of those times. We're grateful that we're going to have a considerable amount of dry powder to execute on what we see as incredible opportunities. Thanks for sharing and thanks for tiptoeing around maybe some things that we don't want to get anyone in trouble on this podcast. We are a compliance-friendly podcast. So I think we've kind of reached the point in the podcast where we do a little bit of a more lighthearted lightning round. So if it's okay with you, I'll ask you a couple of questions that tend to be more kind of personal interest in nature, but we try to do a little bit of a rapid fire. So does that sound good? Yeah, great. All right. Do you have a nickname? Yeah. It's something my sister called me when I was a baby. It's Yoey. Instead of Yoel, she would call me Yoey, like Joey, but with the Y. Cool. What's your favorite hobby? Running. What kind of running do you do? I prefer trail running, but sometimes it's easier to go outside my house in the street. So I would say trail running would be my preference. You have a favorite trail in the Cleveland area? Yeah, I love the metro parks. I love both the South Chagrin Reservation, North Chagrin Reservation. There's a group that when I can, I go out with on Sunday mornings. That's just an eclectic group of all ages and nobody's trying to go too fast, but we get cover a lot of ground and a lot of interesting people. And it's a lot of fun. If you're a cook, what's your favorite recipe to cook? Eggplant parmesan. Eggplant parmesan. Which, by the way, my mentor in Wall Street is the one that taught me how to make it. I didn't know how to make anything, but Maria was Italian and the best cook in the world. Literally taught me how to make eggplant parmesan from scratch. And it is the most delicious thing you could eat. Favorite book about investing or finance? Principles of Stock Operator by Edwin Lefebvre. Profession you'd be in if you weren't with Chase Properties. I like multiple asset classes. So I think either starting a multifamily office or a family office for one single family that has capital that they'd like to diversify. I find it really helpful to compare risk rewards across asset classes. And I enjoy that. I was on the public pension fund board for a long time. That was you know, a thrilling part of that role to not only look at real estate, but to look at private equity, fixed income, everything. And I really enjoy that as well. You have any hidden talents? I do. I can manipulate my mouth in interesting ways. It's like a double jointed thing with my mouth, but <laughs> if your listeners won't be able to see it, but if person, they can ask me, hey, show me that mouth thing. If you're ever at one of our happy hours, we may have you demonstrate it for the group. Sure. That's one of the better hidden talents we've had on this podcast. That's great. Office or remote, which do you prefer? A million percent in person. What's your favorite lunch spot in Cleveland? It was Moxie. I wish that was still here. So now it's Flower. Do you have any social media accounts like a Twitter, I guess, X now? And if you do, what's your favorite follow on social media? Who's my favorite person to follow? Yeah. I like LinkedIn and Instagram. And I like Tim Ferriss. I like Andrew Huberman. I like Joe Rogan. I don't know if I have a favorite. Oh, I like this new guy, Jefferson Fisher, I've been seeing. Have you seen him? No, I haven't. He's a, a lawyer that gives great advice on my conflict resolution. I love it. Jefferson, so maybe I'll put him as my new favorite, Jefferson Fisher. Sure. I am also a fan of someone you listed there, so I may take up on that. Oh, I forgot. My real favorite is a friend of mine who has a podcast that I would recommend to your listeners. Her name is Gabby Reese, and she's an incredible human being, and her podcast is awesome. Cool. I'll look that up as well. You weren't born and raised here, but have you become a Cleveland sports fan since living here? Yeah, you can't help but become it. Like I wasn't a 
New York, New Jersey sports fan, but Cleveland is just kind of have to be one. So I really like the Cavs and my kids. I have five boys, thank God, and they are incredible sports fans. So they love the Browns. They love the Cavs. They love the Guardians. I'm a fan through osmosis from them of those other teams, but I really like the Cavs. Is your favorite sports moment, Cleveland sports moment when they won the championship? Yeah. Well, typically I ask what's the most disappointing Cleveland sports moment. If you have an answer for that, I'd love to hear it. But like me, it sounds like you came to the Cavs or to the Cleveland sports scene kind of a little bit later in life. So maybe there's not a huge disappointment there that you can remember. LeBron leaving, like that whole thing was like just very hard to be part of. Well, that is all kind of the rapid fire questions. Duel, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been fun talking and thanks for the great stories and insight. Thank you, Matt. This was really enjoyable. You have great questions and I really enjoyed the time. You've been listening to Guardians of Finance, brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head on over to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland, attend an educational or social event, and find volunteer opportunities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Guardians of Finance.